Hello and welcome to the Art of World Building podcast, episode number five, part one. Today's topic is how to create races and species, and even when to use each term. As this is a big subject, the podcast will be split into several episodes, each as number five, part one, two, or three, for example. This material and more is discussed in chapter three of Creating Life, volume one in the Art of World Building book series. Do you want practical advice on how to build better worlds faster and have more fun doing it? The Art of World Building book series, website, blog, and podcast will make your worlds beat the competition. This is your host, Randy Ellison, and I have 30 years of world building advice, tips, and tricks to share. Follow along now at artofworldbuilding.com. Creating a species or race is one of the best things that we can do as a world builder. It can make our work stand out from the competition more than anything else. It also is the most reusable aspect of world building because we can use that race or species over and over again. Any series of stories we create, regardless of the medium, can end up being known for the species and races that inhabit the world we create. What first comes to mind when you think of the movie Avatar? The Navi people. Elves, dwarves, and hobbits immediately come to mind with The Lord of the Rings. Even a film series like Star Wars has its Wookiees and Jabba the Hutt and a a multitude of other characters that we see in the background, but which are never explained to us or given names or societies. But we still think of that series as having all of these creatures anyway, don't we? So then the obvious question becomes, how do we go about creating one of these? I think the first thing we need to decide on is what we are going to call this creation, a species or a race. So let's take a look at this subject. Especially in fantasy, audiences are used to the word race being used to describe the difference between, say, a human and an elf and a dwarf, even though these beings are very different from each other physically, not to mention culturally and other ways. But on Earth, none of these exist except for humans, of course, and we use the word race to describe differences in facial features and skin color. In other words, here on Earth, the differences are relatively minor compared to those on a fantasy setting where the bodies are so drastically different. This raises a certain problem with the word race. If we're using that word to describe the difference between humans, elves, and dwarves, then how can we use that word to describe differences between different types of elves? It doesn't really make sense, does it? It's kind of confusing. This suggests that we might want to use the word species to describe the difference between humans, elves, and dwarves, and reserve the word race for the differences between versions of humans, versions of dwarves, and versions of elves, or any other being that we create. So let's take a look at these terms and figure out whether we're being correct or wrong or just what the story is with this. The word race has been described as nothing more than a social construct. In other words, an artificial way of trying to group different versions of something, which in this case are humans. And most humans are 99.9% the same. There are no genetic differences to warrant any classification into races or anything else for that matter. What this means on a practical level is that if two humanoids are genetically different, they would be considered different species. In other words, separate DNA means different species. Shared DNA means a race of a species. What this means for science fiction in particular is that if we have different beings originating from different planets, they are almost certainly going to have different DNA, which means that they would be different species. By contrast, in fantasy, Usually the different beings are from the same planet, so it is possible for them to have a shared DNA. So how do we know if humans, elves, and dwarves have the same DNA? Well, it's impossible. Why? Well, because except for the humans, the rest of those are invented. 
there's no actual DNA for us to take samples of and send to a lab and get back some sort of report on, right? Now, we could assume that if elves have pointed ears, that means that they're genetically different, but this is basically a superficial difference, the same way that uh, different eye shapes or noses or other things are, you know, they're cosmetic, they're trivial, they're not something that's genetically important. Now, some of you are probably thinking, hey, wait a minute, dwarves do actually exist on Earth, so then we could do some testing, but that's just the thing about this. That, that sort of testing has already been done, and the differences with dwarves on Earth for the distinctive height and other characteristics are actually caused by a medical or genetic disorder, which is why those genes are sometimes passed down from parents. However, they are not always passed down from parents. What this means is that a dwarf mother could give birth to a dwarf child or a fully grown child. By contrast, a fully grown human, that who's not a dwarf, could give birth to a dwarf child. This is not what you would expect in a fantasy story, though, right? We always assume that the dwarves give birth to more dwarves, and that humans, by contrast, do not give birth to dwarves. In fact, on that note, that would be an interesting variety. I mean, why is it that on Earth, humans only give birth to both you know, full-size and dwarves, but then on a fantasy setting, humans never give birth to dwarven-sized humans? Wouldn't we end up with, for lack of a better word, Actual dwarves that are always dwarves, and then dwarf humans? How would they be accepted? You know, this is something I don't think anyone has ever done, and I actually never thought of that until just this moment while describing this. But, you know, this is something that we could certainly do in our work. On the same note, why can't an elf give birth to a dwarven elf? The reverse is also true sometimes, while we're on the subject of height, because there are, of course, gigantic humans, and these were not necessarily born from gigantic women or fathers, even though height sometimes does rise and run in the family. It's just a situation where something genetically has happened, and as a result, we have someone who is much smaller or much bigger than normal. The point here is that these differences are exceptions. They are not the rule, and this is something we need to be aware of. Now, in some fantasy settings, the authors will say that all of the elves, dwarves, and humans, for example, have all derived from the same ancestry, and what that would mean is that they have shared DNA. This, in turn, means that they are therefore races, which would seem to be an appropriate term in this case. On the other hand, if the gods created elves, and then they also went off and created humans, and then they later created dwarves, each one of them is being created at a different point in time, which would seem to suggest that they are actually different DNA and therefore different species. This doesn't have to be the case, of course. We could decide that the gods made them all basically have the same DNA or pretty close. As the ultimate god of our world, we can do whatever we like. The last point I want to make on this is that even among biologists on Earth, there is something known as the species problem. Part of what this means is that there are over two dozen definitions of the word species, So basically, even the scientists are having trouble defining what one is. So if you're feeling confused yourself, well, you know, apparently you're not alone. And if this isn't your field of study, then, you know, to some extent, the pressure is off to get this right, because even the scientists can't make up their mind. Hopefully, I'm not going to offend any scientists in the audience by saying that. So then why does the word species exist? Well, it's just like the word races. We're using this to group organisms into what someone considers a logical grouping, such as cats being different from dogs. 
By the way, both races and species can interbreed, producing offspring. So I've seen before some people say that, well, if, if you can't breed, then you're not this or you're not that. Well, that's not actually true. So don't worry about that when you're trying to make up your mind whether to call your beings species or races. The whole breeding thing is a non-issue. Let's take a quick break here and talk about where you can get more useful world-building resources. Heartofworldbuilding.com has most of what you need. This includes links to more podcasts like this one. You can also find more information on all three volumes of the Art of Worldbuilding series. Much of the content of those books is available on the website for free. And the thing that you might find the most useful is that by signing up for the newsletter, you can download the free templates that are included with each volume of the Art of Worldbuilding series, whether you have bought the books or not. All you need to do is join the newsletter. You can do this by going to artofworldbuilding.com slash newsletter. Sign up today and you will get your free templates and you will never miss an update about what is happening in the great world of worldbuilding. Something we should consider when trying to decide between the words races and species is the biodiversity of our creations. For example, elves, dwarves, hobbits, orcs, and humans all have two arms and two legs, one head, and no tail, for example. But if one of them has gills, or maybe wings, or two heads, for example, that's a greater degree of difference, and if it's always the case that it produces that result during mating, then we may want to consider that a different species. We might also want to consider whether to use a hierarchy to denote the differences between races and species. What do I mean by a hierarchy? Well, under humans, we might have Caucasians and Blacks and Latinos, for example. But under elves, we might have high elves, and then we might have drow, also known as uh, basically evil elves. Among the dwarven family, we often have hill dwarves and mountain dwarves. In these cases, the drow and high elves are races of the species of elf. The Caucasians, Asians, and Latinos and Blacks are races of the species of humans. With the dwarves, the hill dwarves and mountain dwarves are races within the species of dwarves. This sort of hierarchical structure seems to make more sense to me personally, but you'll have to decide for yourself if this is something you want to do. On the other hand, if we call humans, Caucasians, elves, mountain dwarves, hill dwarves, drow, if we call all of them races, there's no hierarchy or structure to that at all, and it just is a little bit confusing, isn't it? Maybe we can improve upon this by using both the words species and races and using them in the appropriate context, and generally races are a subset of species. There's an added bonus to using the word species at all, especially in fantasy, and that is that people are used to the word races, and you can pull them out of their comfort zone a little bit and make them kind of perk up and pay a little bit more attention and just uh, not be so comfortable with the same old, same old that they see in so many books and stories. For those of you who support crowdfunding, I am on the Patreon site and would appreciate any support you can lend. Think about whether you're benefiting from this podcast or the Art of Will Building blog and website, and consider supporting the effort to spread the word far and wide. Your support could help a budding world builder create an awesome world that you become a huge fan of. This podcast and related items are my way of giving back to the fantasy, sci-fi, movie, and gaming industries that I love so much. You can give back, too, by helping to fund the effort. When the next Tolkien or George R.R. R. Martin shows up, you can tell yourself, I helped them do that. Your support can be just $1 a month to the cause. Higher levels of support 
get you increasingly cool things, such as PDF transcripts of this podcast, free MP3s, including unreleased music, free ebooks and short stories, bookmarks, and even signed copies of books and CDs of my music. Many of these are unavailable to the public. Just go to artofworldbuilding.com slash patron. You can also just go to the homepage and click the big icon for this. Please note that patron is spelled a little bit weird. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Support great world building today. By the way, on a stylistic point, I'm just going to go ahead with the word species for the rest of this podcast episode and not keep saying species or races, but basically everything I'm saying applies equally to either one. The next thing we should consider is whether we should create a species. Now, if you're listening to this episode, you probably already have some idea whether you want to or not, but let's take a good look at this and whether it's something that we actually need to do or something that we just want to do. Or maybe after learning everything that we need to do in order to create a believable one, we might decide after all that maybe we don't want to do that anymore. Don't worry though, the whole point of this podcast and the book series and templates is to make all of this easier for you. In science fiction, we may have no choice but to invent our own species. Why is that? Well, because aside from the little green aliens, we don't have any public domain species that we can use. Somebody owns the Vulcans from Star Trek, for example. We can use that for fan fiction, but unless we're hired by the Star Trek uh, universe to go ahead and write something for them, we can't get away with publishing anything using them. That leaves us with two options, as far as I can tell. The first of those is that we have a setting where there are only humans and there are no species of any kind besides us, or we go ahead and we create some. Given that humanity is plenty dramatic all by itself, we don't really need to invent species if we don't really feel like doing so. There are plenty of series out there that don't have any, especially if the characters are originating from Earth and only operating in our solar system, for example. However, if we have science fiction where the characters are traveling very far from Earth outside our solar system but still within our galaxy, then we're probably going to have them encountering other life forms somewhere else. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a situation where we have to put that story so far into the future that the only people we're encountering on distant planets and other solar systems are other humans who made it there hundreds if not thousands of years ago. So unless we intend on having that kind of history, which is still in our current future, then we're going to probably want to invent species that our characters can run into. Either that, or keep everyone local to our solar system. Now there is one way around that, and this can work in fantasy as well, and that is to have magic portals, or something like the Stargate from that TV show, where we can get from Earth to some distant location in either this solar system or another one, or even in a faraway galaxy, in a blink of an eye. What this eliminates is the need for extensive years, you know, in orders of magnitude of thousands of years of light years, for characters to have traveled to that other planet and then have set up a colony, a civilization, and all of that to flourish for however many more, hundreds or thousands of years. You know, all of that's very time-consuming in story terms, and it involves creating a lot of history that is in our future. We can avoid that by having people get there much quicker. Now, in a series like Star Trek, for example, there are species who are ever-present, like the Vulcans, who are probably in every episode of that show. But then there are species who only show up for a single episode, and we know our characters meet them, and things happen, and all that. And so there's the point I'm trying to make here is that we don't always have to create a species in incredible depth. That's something we want to do for a creature or a species that we're going to use throughout a series. 
But, you know, the, the nature of episodic television sets us up for a situation where characters are going to be on screen and for, you know, just one episode. And we can take more chances or have more leeway with how we present them or even how much we do when we're inventing that species. So we don't always have to go overboard and create everything. If we are working on a TV show, we're probably going to have a lot of help in the form of costume designers and others who are going to uh, improve on our work, even meddle with it, even uh, do things that we might consider destroying it. But uh, for authors, we're going to have all of that work being done just by us. So we can have more freedom, but we also have more work. The scenario of having a character who's only around for one story is a situation ripe for only creating what you need. Something to be aware of, though, is that if we do intend to create something for just one story, we may change our minds later and decide to expand on that, and we just should be aware of what we've originally created and whether we've boxed ourselves into any sort of corner with them. For example, we may not want to make any unnecessary comments, such as, they never leave their planet. Well, if we decide them, use them in another context later, and we need them to have left the planet, now we're contradicting ourselves. So unless we need to make such a comment in our story, uh, it's probably better to just not make any universal statement like that. Of course, another way around that is we could decide at a later time that something happened to that planet, and now they are travelers. Whether that planet was destroyed or something less extreme happened, where it just became less hospitable. With some creativity, we can usually work our way out of a box if we've put ourselves into one. So let's talk about how to subscribe to this podcast. A podcast is a free, downloadable audio show that enables you to learn while you're on the go. To subscribe to my podcast for free, you'll need an app to listen to the show from. For iPhone, iPad, and iPad listeners, grab your phone or device and go to the iTunes store and search for The Art of World Building. This will help you to download the free podcast app, which is produced by Apple, and then subscribe to the show from within that app. Every time I produce a new episode, you'll get it downloaded right onto your iDevice. For Android listeners, you can download the Stitcher Radio app, which is free, and search for The Art of World Building. This only needs to be done once, and at that point, you will never miss an episode. Things are a little bit different in fantasy because we have a number of public domain species or races that we can use. This includes elves and dwarves. It also includes dragons. No one owns these. This means that no one can tell us to not use them. We don't need anyone's permission and we don't need to pay anybody. It's great. The big problem is that because this is true for everyone, that means that probably every fantasy author in all of recorded history is using the same species. This means they are arguably overused. Now, some people probably don't mind them, have have never gotten sick of them, and don't really mind seeing the same thing over and over again, but other people might really be desiring something new, and that's where you come in. As a world builder, you have the ability to invent a new species and blow the socks off of your audience and have them coming back to your work more and more because you're one of the people doing something new, something different, and it's just a little bit more exciting than seeing the same old thing they've always seen before. On that note, the ability to do something new means we are not beholden to anyone else for ideas. You know, with elves, we can only present them with so many variations, because if you remove something that everyone assumes is going to be there, like the pointed ears, then people are going to cry foul. We can get away with making minor variations, and in fact, I touched on this previously in Chapter 1 in a section called What's in a Name. 
The trick is not to shock somebody with a name that is very jarring because it's so far off from expectations. I think the previous example I used was the word goblin being used for something, and by the time the actual goblin appeared on screen, as it turns out, it was actually an ape. This basically caused blowback for me because I kind of rejected what they were doing and saying, and it also took me right out of the scene and the story, and I sat there mentally criticizing the movie I was watching. That is not the reaction we want our audience to have. So when we make minor changes, that's okay. But if we make a bigger change and we remove something that's expected, then we shouldn't call it what we shouldn't call it what it, what it is based on. The obvious example is a dwarf that is 10 feet tall. That doesn't make any sense. So just don't go there. Another issue with using the same species that everyone else is using is that sometimes it seems we can read 10 different books by 10 different authors and get 10 different versions of what an elf is. Now, when I was younger, that sort of inconsistency bothered me a little bit, but since then I've gotten a life and I've gotten over that. But, you know, some people might not like that so much. This is something that caused me personally to strike out more and start inventing my own species. And what I'm getting at here is that if, let's say there's 10 different versions of what an elf is, well, I couldn't figure out which version of them I wanted for the planet I was creating. And I, ha- I had no criteria, I had no reason to choose one over another, and the indecision was one of the things that kind of bothered me about this. That, in turn, led to the thought, well, why do I have to use them at all? And so one thing led to another, and that was part of how I became more of a world builder and more of a species creator. There's another point to make here, and that in the Lord of the Rings series, we have Ents and Hobbits, which are both owned by the Tolkien estate. So this means we cannot use them. However, for some of you, you've played Dungeons and Dragons and you may have seen Treants and Halflings. Well, what are they? They're basically Ents and Hobbits by another name. Personally, I'm a little surprised that anyone could get away with basically ripping off the idea wholesale and just putting a different name on it. So there might be a little bit more to this. And if you decide to do something like this, you might want to run this by your legal team, for example. But it is an option. To give yourself some plausible deniability, you might want to also make some changes to it. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review the show at artofworldbuilding.com slash review. Reviews really are critical to encouraging more people to listen to a show they haven't heard of before. And it can also help the show rank better, allowing more people to discover it. Again, that URL is artofworldbuilding.com slash review. We should also consider how often we're going to use our setting. Something that we're only going to use for a single story may not benefit from the time and effort that it takes to create a species. On the other hand, if we're intending to use that world indefinitely, then maybe it's worth spending that time. We might want to take a hybrid approach where we create a main world that we've put more effort into creating species, and then for a standalone short story or a novel that we're not going to follow up on, then we can just uh, use something standard like these elves and dwarves from fantasy, for example. So let's talk a little bit about the scope of what we invent. As mentioned, in some cases we will want to do a lot of world building on that species, and in other cases we might want to do the bare minimum. So let's talk about what the bare minimum is. At the very least, we should decide on the physical appearance of this species and the overall disposition that is shared across all members of that species. A specific character might go against that disposition, but that's fine. Knowing what the main disposition of all of them is helps us characterize even that one person who is different. There are also types of species such as ogres and orcs and other henchmen that usually don't get a significant amount of development. We just go ahead and do that appearance and their overall attitude and kind of leave it at that. 
We often don't see them having a language that's well-developed or a culture, and we tend to look at them as someone who is kind of mooching on the rest of the world. For example, they may not have the ability or the technological skill or intelligence to create buildings, so perhaps they are living in ruins. Species like this require a little bit less development time. But it isn't only the so-called evil species that can get this limited time. We sometimes see another character who is basically benevolent, who is also the same way. The one that comes to mind for me is Chewbacca from Star Wars. Technically, he is a Wookiee, but in the original trilogy of films, we never saw another Wookiee. This basically means that he had become synonymous with his species, so whatever he was, all of them were, as far as we knew. Adding to that is that he never says anything that any of us can understand. In fact, most of his characterization comes from Harrison Ford's acting ability as he reacts to Chewbacca, and, you know, that's where all of his personality seemingly comes from. Han Solo was what makes Chewbacca work, and in that sense, you know, Harrison Ford did double duty in those films. In books, it could be harder to make such a character work, and we are probably going to forget that the character even exists, and just tend to look at them as a kind of positive henchman. As a side note, Wookiee is capitalized for some reason, but your species or races should not be. That's not a title or a proper name. We only see the word human capitalized if it's the start of a sentence. We can also capitalize something if it is synonymous with a region that is also capitalized. For example, Germans is capitalized because of Germany. Normally, we're not going to be doing this, however. Continuing with the Star Wars example, on film, we see so many other species that are just in the background, so they have almost no development time to them, and they will never even get a name. This would represent the extreme of doing very little work on a species. So now let's look at the maximum that we could do. This means creating a fully developed species. So that means their habitat, climate, settlement preferences, appearance of the head, body, and clothing, their gods, society, language, customs, history, relationships with other species, their supernatural talents and attitudes, uh, the same thing for technology, and then even what their combat skills are. All of these subjects are included in the template that you can download by joining the Art of Will Building newsletter. This will help speed up doing this and make sure you don't overlook something. The biggest issue with doing the maximum is the sheer amount of hours in months, even years, of refinement and development that you're going to do. And during this process, you're going to weed out ideas you don't like as much. You're also going to be adding things. You sometimes might add something that contradicts an earlier idea, and now you have to choose how to resolve this or just get rid of one. This can be a lot of fun, but the fact of the matter is it's extremely time-consuming. It also doesn't typically produce something that you can actually sell to the public in the form of a book or something, whereas working on a story does. And in fact, every minute that you spend working on world building is a minute that you're spending or you're not spending on your writing craft or on promoting a book or even writing that book. So what does that mean? Well, it means you should choose wisely when to do this maximum. So how do we make a wise decision? Only do the maximum when you really need to or when you are really passionate about the idea that you are working on or if you are intending to use that idea on a setting or in a series that you are going to write for for many episodes or stories or a series of books. Don't do it for just a one-off. You're basically wasting your time in that scenario. In between the minimum and the maximum is a more moderated approach. You've probably heard that expression that all things are best in moderation. Well, this applies to world building just as anything else. So what does that really mean? 
Well, I recommend deciding on the species habitat because that's going to determine a lot about how their bodies developed and even where they're going to be found on your world. We should also decide whether they are willing to live in joint settlements or only settlements by their species. Now, what I mean by a joint settlement is not simply that they go out and they find themselves temporarily or even permanently living in a settlement that is mostly human, for example, but that they actually create a settlement with humans and elves or whoever else. The idea of joint settlements will be discussed in more detail in Creating Places, which is the second volume in the Art of Worldbuilding series, but the basic idea is that it's a little bit unrealistic for most worlds to have settlements that are almost exclusively created by and for one of the species, if there are lots of species around. The moderation approach to creating a species also includes deciding on their overall disposition, uh, their appearance, their relationships with each other, and other species. Now, the areas that we can skimp on for now can be their clothing, their gods, characteristics like agility, intelligence, and morale, their languages, customs, and history, combat, and even the details of their ability to manipulate supernatural or technological forces. Only you can really decide on what you want to create and what you need to create for your story, but this should give you some idea. All of the show's music is actually courtesy of yours truly, as I'm also a musician. The theme song is the title track for my Some Things Are Better Left Unsaid album, but now we're closing out with another tune. This is Chimes of Passion from the Firebard album. You can hear more at randyellifson.com. Check out artofworldbuilding.com for free templates to help with your worldbuilding. And please rate and review the show in iTunes. Thanks for listening.